Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 12. Revelation 12. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all of those who are joining us via our live stream this morning, including uh, Reach Church DeSoto. I'm so grateful uh, for Pastor Ryan over there. Uh, I was joking with Pastor Ryan this week. Uh, you know, in the midst of this season, this world we're living in today, you always have to have a backup plan. What happens? Uh, you've seen a little bit of our backup plan this morning. Pastor Josh led us in worship. How about that? Did he not do a good job? But I've always let Pastor Ryan know my backup plan is him. So I go down. He's up. And uh, I told him this week, uh, DeSoto's watching this morning. They're with us. But uh, if he does, he has to sing a hymn at the end now. All right? So... <laughs> He was a reluctant, uh, but hopefully enough peer pressure, and he'll do that, but uh, we'll see. Well, Revelation 12. One other thing, too, before we get started here, uh, our foundation, LBC Foundation, is hosting an event this coming uh, Tuesday, February 1st, at uh, 5.30 in the K-Hall on uh, estate planning. And uh, these, these are some things that uh, we want to help you with. I uh, looked at some numbers this week. 73% of all Americans do not have an estate plan. Or actually, that's 55%. I get my numbers confused here. 55%. Over half of Americans don't have an estate plan. Um, 73%, their, their will is out of date. And this is what I see a lot of. 35% of Americans will have some kind of conflict in their family because the loved one that passed away did not have an estate plan. Uh, this is a stewardship matter. We as Christians and believers should be preparing for these things and stewing our money not only in our life but in the event of our passing, which we know will come. So if you'd like to be a part of this, we're going to have some great people there that can give you some information on those things, direct you in the right ways. You can text FOUNDATION to 89449. Just text FOUNDATION to 89449, or you can go on our website, look at events, and you can register there. You're going to get a meal out of it anyway. It'd be a great time together, so you come, you register, and uh, participate in that. Revelation 12, we're in the midst of this kind of interlude that I shared with you several weeks ago as we begun last week, and we looked at uh, unbelieving Israel. Now in this interlude, we take a look at believing Israel, and even more than that, we get a behind-the-scenes look at Satan himself. I've told you this before, but revelation is not just the revelation of Christ. It's the revelation of Satan, the source and the root and the origin of all evil. In fact, he is the reason that Christ came, to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. There is a lot of material in this passage. It was pretty uh, presumptuous on my part to think we could get through it in one Sunday. Probably should have divided it into two. And I think there's a game this afternoon and most people are going to want to watch, uh, including myself. So I'm going to try uh, to work our way through this rather quickly. Buckle in. Hopefully we don't muddy the water this morning. But let's just pray. And we'll ask God's help as we study his word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. God, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You've told us who you are. You've told us what you're doing. You have shown us who is the source of evil and who is the enemy. And not only his doom, but his ultimate destruction. 
God, I pray by means of your word today, you would give us greater clarity on who we are, how we're intended to respond to you. And God, most importantly, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning or watching online, join us to be our live stream in whatever way, God, I pray that the gospel will be clear, that if they don't know you, they today would bend the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen. Let's dive right in here. Verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. So we've got a sign. It's a symbol that points to a reality. So a sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So here you have a woman. It's a symbolic woman painting a picture of a reality. It's a woman who's clothed in the sun, moon under her feet, crown of 12 stars. That imagery, and in fact, let me just state this on the front end. Hopefully you have a Bible with cross-references. And those are wonderful things. Most of my study this week was looking at cross-references. I love the way the Bible comes together in Revelation. But the imagery that is used here of the sun, the moon, and the stars is familiar. It's the reason we studied Genesis. In Genesis 37, Joseph has a dream. First of all, he has the dream of the sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. And then he has another dream, and the sun, the moon, and the stars all bow down to him. The sun being Jacob, his father, the moon being his mom, and they're bowing down to him. You remember his dad says, what are you talking about? You saying we're going to bow down to, to you? And that was ultimately the dream. But Joseph's life, in so many ways, parallels the history of Israel. And so we see in this imagery and in this woman a picture of the nation of Israel. So the woman represents Israel. Um, This is a picture of true Israel. That this nation, like the sun, the moon, the stars that reflect the light, this nation was to reflect the light of God. Uh, We get from Israel, we get the law of God, we get the word of God, we get Messiah from this nation, the light of the world. They were intended to be the light And so this woman, again, represents Israel. Then look at verse 2. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. So Israel, the woman, is going to give birth to a male child. We've heard this before. Hopefully you've heard this a lot. That Abraham's seed, the seed of Abraham, would come the Messiah. The lady is Israel. The child is Messiah. If you have, again, cross-references are beautiful things. You should have a cross-reference right there to Micah chapter 5. We don't have time to go there this morning, but in Micah chapter 5, the Babylonians were coming to destroy the nation and, and their king, but God was not finished with that nation. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little among the clans of Judah... From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Do we know of a Jewish king who comes and is born in Bethlehem, and he's not just an earthly king, he's an eternal king? We know who that is. It is Jesus. And then in verse 3 of Micah chapter 5, he will give them up. I mean, he's going to give up the nation, and they will be taken into captivity Until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. 
And that's exactly what happened. God gave this nation up. They were taken into captivity by the Babylonians and the Greeks and Romans until what? Until a child was born. And so this lady is Israel. The child is Messiah. Look then with me at verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. The dragon, is, it'll become incredibly clear as we move forward, but this red dragon is Satan. And it says here he has seven heads, and on those heads are diadems. So you've got heads with crowns. These heads represent the kings and the kingdoms that come out of the dragon. They are what I would say satanic kingdoms. They hate God, they hate Israel, and they hate Jesus. You remember that after the flood, God kind of starts over again. You'll, you'll get like a second Eden. Again, it's so beautiful. It's why we, we study Genesis before Revelation, because if you're going to understand the ending, you've got to know the beginning. So much of what we study in Revelation plays out or in Genesis, plays out in Revelation. But uh, after the flood, God starts over again, and uh, there's sacrifice instituted, and you're hoping that the, the, the people now will follow God and trust in him, but then there's corruption. They gather together. Satan works through a man named Nimrod, and all the, the world kind of comes together. You would think that when the world comes together, that would be a good thing. But the world coming together is not a good thing. They will not devise great good they will always devise great evil. It's like uh, you have children, you know, sometimes when they all come together, they start conspiring, and you normally think they're not conspiring for good things, and you have to separate. If you're a teacher, you know this. Sometimes you've got to separate students because they won't come together for great good. They'll come together for great evil. Well, the world comes together for great evil. They're going to build this tower, and uh, what does God do? God, in his grace, he scatters them, different languages, and now you have nations. And then you remember in Genesis 12, what does God do? God says, I'm going to set aside my own nation, the nation of Israel. And moving on from Genesis chapter 12, you'll see the arisal of world kingdoms. You'll see these, these nations that are world kingdoms. They will arise after uh, Genesis 12. And you'll see Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. And they all have two things in common. They are all satanic. Satan is behind them. See, we, we see history and we just see the arisals of kings and nations. The Bible tells you who's behind it. You don't get that in a history class. But we learn that Satan is behind these kings and behind these kingdoms. They hate God. They hate Israel. And so they come against Christ. And these are the seven horns. Really, you've got here Assyria, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We've also talked about this in Daniel. Those are the six heads. After Rome, though, we don't see another great world power. What you have after Rome is you have nation states, which is where we're at today. But there is coming another great world power, isn't there? We talked about this in Daniel. Hopefully this is setting in. But there's coming one great, another great world power that will come after the tribulation has begun. Antichrist will have a ten-nation confederacy, a revived Rome, and that is your seventh head. All right, so those are the seven heads. Those are those nations that arise after Genesis 12 that are world powers that come against God and Israel. Then you also see the ten horns. 
What are the ten horns? The ten horns are the ten nation confederacy that rises in the midst of the tribulation and will come against Israel and God and his Messiah. So just to kind of summarize, the dragon is Satan. Ten heads, ten horns. You've got different nations, different means of government at different times. But Satan is behind them all. And they hate the one true God of Israel. And they hate Messiah. So here is Satan, the red dragon. Look at verse 4. And then it says, And his tail, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And so the dragon with its tail is swept away a third of the stars. Now, this, as I was studying this, I have to just admit to you that I think I might have changed a bit of my interpretation on these things. Because typically, when I look at this, I look at this as an indicator that uh, Satan uh, led a rebellion. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But with that rebellion, he led a third of the angels away with him. Now, I still believe he led a rebellion and led angels away with him. But now as I look at this, I really think these stars that he is, these third of the stars is referring to believing Israel. Because in verse 1, who are the stars? The 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I take this to be, when he swept away with the tail, a third of the stars, I take that to be believing Israel. You should also have a cross-reference there to Daniel chapter 8, verse 10. This was also critical to me. We studied Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, or Daniel chapter 8 in general. But in verse 10, you'll remember, it's speaking of the little horn who is Antiochus Epiphanes. And he persecuted believing Israel that he caused, it says in uh, Daniel, you need to go read these things later. I hope you do. But Daniel 8, verse 10, he caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the ground. That's Daniel 8. It's Antiochus Epiphanes uh, coming against persecuting faithful Jews. And so again, Satan hates the faithful. He hates the stars. He hates faithful Jews. But he hates one star in particular. Who is that? Jesus Christ. And so here he is, he's pictured as waiting on the Messiah. He strikes faithful Israel, and he's waiting on the Messiah to come. One Jew that Satan hates most of all, it's not an educator, it's not a scientist, it's not a wealthy, powerful, or political person, it's not a religious person, it is one child. And he waits on Christ to be born. And you'll remember when Christ was born, what happened? Satan worked in the heart of a king to say, we're going to kill him. And if we have to kill every firstborn in all of Israel, we're going to kill this child. But you remember what? God had a plan too, didn't he? And he appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he redirects Joseph so that he can be protective of the God's Messiah. And so at every point in Jesus' ministry, Satan is trying to kill him. I, uh, the, just this week, just the imagery in my mind went to... Uh, the Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson produced. And uh, I was talking with Faith, and whoever was behind a lot of that had to be a pretty good theologian. But it pictures Satan, that one, these cloaked, and at every, almost every scene, you see who there? Satan, looking at Christ throughout Jesus' life and ministry, Satan is trying to attack this one child knowing that through him will come salvation. We'll look at verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, 
who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is beautiful. I love this. Male child who will one day rule the nations with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Do these things sound familiar? In one verse, God brings together the, both Genesis 3.15, that I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, and he, one male child, and then he will rule the nations with a rod of iron and he shall shatter them like earthenware. Where does that come from? Psalm chapter 2. Isn't God good? He can bring Genesis 3.15, Psalm 2 together in one verse to point us to Jesus Christ. That even though Satan worked in the heart of a nation to kill him, God had a plan. And you'll know in Christ's death, God took all of the sin of man from the beginning to the very end. He placed it on the back of Jesus and he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That Satan played right into God's hand. God used Satan because Satan had no claim on Christ's life and Christ defeated the grave in his resurrection and he appeared to the 12 and more than 500 at one time as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. And then what did he do? He ascended to the Father and to his throne. So here you have God in Revelation directing us to this child that was prophesied from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, talked about in the Old Testament, even in Psalms, and here he is the one who defeats Satan in his death and he is taken up to God and to his throne. Then in verse six, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel flees to the wilderness and they are protected by God. And so here, believing Israel goes to the wilderness and God cares for them just as he did in the Old Testament. When does Israel, when is Israel instructed to flee into the wilderness? Uh, Matthew 24, this, we're pulling together so much of scripture. Uh, and I encourage you, don't take my word for these things. Go study it on your own. But in Matthew 24, you remember Jesus. He's talking about the end times. He says to the nation, when you see the abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel, what does he say? You run. Um, you'll remember in the middle of the tribulation period, the beginning Antichrist covenants with Israel to rebuild the temple. They're given the opportunity to rebuild and to offer sacrifice. But in the middle of the tribulation, what happens? Antichrist goes back on his agreement and he sets himself up in the temple as God. That is the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, when that happens, you run. Flee for the hills. He says, don't go back and try to get your stuff and hope that you're not pregnant or nursing because it's going to be a bad day. You run. And then look at verses 7 through 9. They'll, they'll flee to the wilderness, the latter portion of the tribulation. God will care for them in verses 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. There has been, this is picturing, and by the way, you want to make a movie. Steven Spielberg can't recreate this stuff. I mean, you want a movie. This, 
The Avengers doesn't come close to this. But there has been war in heaven since the fall of Satan. And again, maybe one day we'll do an entire Sunday on the study of Satan. But Ezekiel 28, jot these things down. I'm giving you a lot of cross-references. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 reference the pre-fall and fall of Satan. Let me just give you an overview. Prior to the creation of man, God created a myriad of shadow beings. And they were made to worship him and to serve him. Not because God is weak, but because God delights in service. And he's the Lord of hosts. And one of them was the leader of all of them. He was the mightiest. He was the brightest. He was the most beautiful. He was the most trusted. He's called the morning star, the bright shining one. It's the, where we get the word Lucifer from. And we don't know why, but we do know he wanted to be like God. In Isaiah 14, verse 13, it says, I will ascend to heaven and will raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. Do you see the heart of Satan? I will make myself great. And he desires to be like God. He wanted to be su supreme. And he leads a rebellion in heaven. He sets his face against God. And there has been war in heaven since that moment. At the fall of man, God does what? In fact, the first maneuver, attack sequence of Satan was what? To go to the center priest of God's creation, the man and the woman, and lie to them. And after the fall of man, he deceives the man and the woman. At that moment, you know what God does? He pronounces Satan's doom. Not only pronounces his doom, he pronounces the means by which he will do it. And that's Genesis 3.15, that I'm going to send somebody who's going to defeat you. On the cross, Jesus accomplishes Satan's doom. Jesus did what Satan was most afraid of. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And there, there was now hope. There was a new man to be born of as Christ provides salvation through faith in him. That Christ would take away our sins. He would turn us loose and we would begin to multiply. That is what Satan was afraid of. And let me remind you today, that is what Satan hates the most is men and women with a heart to tell the people out there about the good news of Jesus Christ and go and make disciples so that they begin to multiply. And I just want to let you know today, if you engage yourself in the gospel mission to tell people about Jesus and to make disciples and multiply yourself, Satan hates you. Christianity is not for the weak. A lot of people associate Christianity weak. Oh, they're just weak-minded, weak people. no. Christianity is not for the weak. It takes men and women of boldness and courage who have a mark and a target on our back by Satan to go out into the world and tell people that they can be loosed from the chains of Satan and they can give themselves to a good master and the great king, King Jesus, and no life here and no life for all eternity. That is what Satan hates the most. Satan is not afraid of politicians. 
He's not afraid of scientists. He's not afraid of doctors. He's not afraid of military leaders. He's scared of the virgin-born God-man who dies a substitutionary death and is raised from the grave and saves lost sinners from the power of domain of Satan and death. That's what he's scared of. You want to make, my prayer is Satan trembles a little bit every morning I get up. He's up again. We ought to scare him to death. By the way, I'll tell you about this in a minute, but I, I can't do it. We, got, we don't have time. All right. So his doom is pronounced at, in Genesis 3.15. His doom is accomplished on the cross, but is Satan finished? No, he's, he's still at work, but he's lost his grip. As Christ begins to set the prisoners free. I love the way that Jesus said it in Luke 11. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own possessions. Who's the strong man? It's Satan. Who are his possessions? It's you and me, apart from Christ, prior to Jesus. The strong man, fully armed, guards his own possessions, and they're undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he had relied, and he distributes his plunder. Satan on the cross was attacked and overpowered by the king of kings and the lord of lords, and now he has lost his armor. You know what I had in my mind? Rocky Four. It always comes back to Rocky but you remember that moment where all of a sudden Rocky gets a good punch in on Drago? And in the corner, you know what they say? He's not a machine. He's a man. Do you know what Christ did? He cut Satan's legs out from underneath him. And now you and I, as we go out into the world, he's lost his armor. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We know we have an enemy, but we don't have anything to be afraid of as long as Christ is with us. And so Satan, by means of the cross, his power has been broken, and Jesus plunders his possessions. That's his present. What's his future? His future is verses 7 through 10. Look at this. This is mid-tribulation. At the midpoint in the tribulation, it says in verse 9, Satan is thrown down to earth. We've already seen this in Revelation 9. He's thrown down to earth. In Luke chapter 10, I love this, Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70. He sends out the disciples to make disciples. And they come back and they're really excited. You know what they say? They say, even the demons were subject to us. And you know what Christ says? While you guys were out there, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Do you know what he's saying? As you guys go out and preach the gospel, I'm able to see what Satan has coming. And that's one day he'll be thrown down from heaven and defeated. And then in verse 10, then I saw a loud voice in heaven say, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. That is what Satan is doing today. He exists in God's presence. Um, I think if you die today, you get a glimpse of Satan. 
I think he won't be nearly as impressive as you think he was. But you remember in, in Job, have you considered my servant Job? He, Satan is right there in the presence of God. You want to talk about something scary? You know what he said to Peter? Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you. And I prayed for you that once you've been knocked down, you'll get back up and you'll be a servant to God's people. So Satan exists in the presence of God. And you know what he's doing? He's accusing the saints. He's bringing accusation against you. Satan lies to us, but he don't lie to God. Does Satan have means to bring accusation against us? Do you know what I think sometimes Jesus says? They're not half as bad as you think, they're, or they're twice as bad as what you think they are. And yet I'm going to die for them. And so he exists in heaven, he's accusing the brethren, but right here he's thrown down. And how did they overcome? I love verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. This is how we overcome Satan. A true believer, if you ask them, what is your hope today? If you're to die today, stand before God, you're going to heaven, what's your hope? A true believer without hesitation will tell them Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross that covers my sin. That's my only hope. How do we overcome? By the blood of the lamb. We have a savior who died in our place to defeat you, Satan. Not only by the blood of the lamb, but by the word of their testimony. That a true believer who knows Jesus, they will talk about Jesus. You want to know a true believer? A true believer is somebody who's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to me this morning. Either your discipleship will kill your secrecy or your secrecy will kill your discipleship. But you can't, your salvation is a personal matter. But it's not intended ever to be private. Oftentimes you lead a person to faith in Christ in the initial days. They want to be a little secretive. They're scared of going public. And there's that critical moment. Will you publicly confess him? Those who are true, they, they share their testimony. They have a testimony about the grace of God. And they didn't love their life even when faced with death. That is the perseverance of the saints. True believers will endure to the very end even when faced with death. And we come from, if you don't know this, a long line of martyrs who were faithful even unto death. Then look at verse 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So as Satan falls, heaven rejoices. Because why? We know that the end is near. When, when Satan falls from heaven, it's getting close. But woe to the earth. Do you know why he says woe to the earth? Because hell's going to be unleashed on earth, that latter portion of the great tribulation. The idea is, you don't want Christ as king? Well, then you can have your king. You want him? You got him. Listen to me today. Everybody in this room watching in line, you're serving one of two masters. Christ or Satan. Very few people will say, yeah, I'm following Satan. That's not what they say. But the fact of the matter is, according to Ephesians chapter 2, if you're following the course of the world, who do you think is leading the world in that direction? Satan. 
And so God says, you want him, you got him. See how you like this. And Satan is thrown down from heaven. Then in verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Who's the woman? Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Messiah. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly to the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So Satan is thrown down. He attacks the woman that's believing Israel. And they flee to the wilderness and God providentially meets their needs. Just as God did in the Old Testament as they flee, they mount up on wings like eagles. They run and not grow weary, walk and not grow faint. Verse 15, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth, drank up the water and the dragon poured, that which the dragon poured out of his mouth. There is evidence to suggest, and the more I say this, the more I, I tend to lean this direction. If, if Israel, believing Israel in the midst of the, the tribulation, if they're going to flee, they can't flee to the west. Why? Because they can't flee into sea. Uh, so they, they flee. If they're going to flee, they're going to flee to the east. And there's a city in the east. I've not been there. Hopefully I will. It's called Petra. It's a city in the rocks. And it's the most well-fortified city in all the world because there's only really one little narrow entrance, one little narrow way into this city of protection. And the only thing that you really have to fear in Petra is a flood. And here it appears that as they flee, Satan pours out a flood. And what does the earth do? It opens and swallows the water. Does that remind you of an event in the Old Testament where Israel has their back up against the wall and God parts the water and they pass through? This is a second exodus in God's means of protection for his people. Verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who are the rest of her children that keep the commandments? It's Christians. What we find out here is we have an enemy named Satan. He hates Israel. He hates that nation. He hates one Jew in particular, Jesus Christ. And he also hates you and me. Those who bend the knee to, to, the, to this Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. He hates us. Those of us who have trusted in the promised seed of Israel. Those of us who have trusted in Israel's Messiah. Now, Satan is going to be defeated. Can I give you a spoiler? Can I give you the advanced knowledge that we're going to get to? Because I thought, how could I leave it right here? Um, let me just really quickly. I got five minutes. We're going to be a little over. Hang in there. Right here, mid-tribulation, Satan is cast down. At the end of the tribulation, to Satan's delight, he'll have all of the nation of Israel in one little boundary to starve them, to kill them, to crush the voice of God and his Messiah forever. But before he can defeat them, something happens. Jesus said to the nation of Israel, you'll not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this nation, the nation of Israel, at that moment with their backs against the wall, they will fall on their knees and they will cry out for Messiah. And guess what? Messiah shows up. It is the return of Christ. Will, will we see it? We'll be there. We'll be part of it. 
We will come with Christ and those nations that are against, gathered against this nation, against God and his Messiah. Christ will defeat them with the word of his mouth. They will be cut down immediately. They're destroyed and Satan is bound and cast into the abyss for 1,000 years. And Christ takes every nation and gathered before him and separates the sheep from the goats and he casts them into the darkness and we see the kingdom of God on earth that men will study war no more. You can beat your swords into plowshares because you're gonna be more interested in farming than warfare. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Israel will be exalted. There will be a temple with sacrifice like communion as a memorial to Jesus Christ who came and died for our sins. And all of God's promises to Israel will come to fruition. And all the world will be blessed because of God's covenantal faithfulness to Israel. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, surely man would never rebel again. Surely, as we are in the presence of Christ. It, in the millennial kingdom, there is evidence that children will be born. Can you imagine children that have never known sin? The only evidence of sin in that kingdom will be what? The scars on Jesus' hands and feet. Can you imagine a child asking one of you, why, why are the scars there? Because we killed him. You did what? Unbelievable. In the presence of Christ, but at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released. Because every, at every station of history, man has been tested. And man will be tested again. And Satan will once again lead a rebellion. Do you know what I think he does? I think he goes to the thinks he does the same thing. His tricks don't really change. I think he'll go to people in the midst of the millennial kingdom and say, you think you have everything, don't you? You know the one thing you don't have is the ability to do whatever you want to do. And he'll lead a rebellion. Now, what is God to do at that point? I mean, you've tried everything. Do you know what God does? He burns it down. Peter says that the, mel the elements melt with an intense heat. Fire came from his presence, consumed everything. And from the dust came every body of every wicked man who had ever lived, from the first murderer to the final rebel. And the Lord Jesus sat on his throne. He opens the books and he judges the wicked. And he casts them into the eternal lake of fire with nothing to ever remind them of God again. They are by themselves in a body with the ability to sense the pain of burning. And their only fellowship will be with Satan and his demonic host for all eternity. And then what does God do? He makes a new heavens and a new earth. He starts all over again. You know what I hope 
is we get to see him remake it. Haven't you all wondered what, what it would be like to see God when he originally created the heavens and the earth? He's going to speak it all into existence again. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and he illumines it not with the sun, but with his very presence. And there came a heavenly dwelling place. In my Father's house are many mansions. And God dwelt with his people, and the earth was perfect just as it was in the beginning. And man had perfect fellowship with God and with each other, and Israel becomes what they were supposed to be. Satan is gone, and there's no more reminder of sin or evil except for the scars on Jesus' hand and feet, and the wisdom of God is now made known to the angelic realm forever. Now, here's very simply how I want to leave this. We're already over, but very simply this morning. Choose this day who you will serve. Sooner or later, you better make a decision about what side you're on. Everyone serving one of two masters, either Jesus Christ or Satan. And Satan is a hard master. And he will drive your life into pain and finally and eventually into destruction. Can I tell you, if you'll bend the knee to King Jesus, he's a wonderful king. You know, he says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Any of you worn out with sin this morning, worn out with following Christ as he beats you down every day, come to Jesus. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He's a good, good master. And then more practically, for those of us who do know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, this kind of information shouldn't fill our heads and leave us with big heads. It should break our hearts for the lost. Because we know where this deal's headed if they don't turn, if they don't repent and trust in Christ. And how will they believe on him who they don't know about? And how will they hear about him if God doesn't send preachers? You know who the preachers are? It's us. We have an obligation to tell a world. I love what Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned to hell, let them walk over my dead body. Meaning the greatest passion of our life needs, needs to be, it should be. To tell other people about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords so that they'll bend to Christ and know his salvation and his forgiveness. Do we have a hymn? Again, not so much a hymn. If you, I'm not going to even try to sing this. If you get a chance, you go home, you Google this. You Google this song and listen to David Phelps sing it because he's better than me. But I love this. It says, the timeless theme, earth and heaven will pass away. It's not a dream. God will make all things new that day. Gone is the curse from which I stumbled and fell. Evil is banished to eternal hell. No more night. No more pain. No more tears. No more crying again. Praises to the great I am. And we will live in the light of the risen Lamb. See all around, now the nations bow down to sing. The only sound is praises to Christ the King. Slowly the names from the book are read. I know the King. There's no need, no need to dread. See over there, there's a mansion that's prepared just for me where I will live with my Savior 
eternally. And there'll be no more night. No more pain. No more tears, never crying again. Praises to the great I am. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word today. It gives us an assurance not only of what you have done and what you are doing, but what you will do. God, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, I pray today that they would see the depth of their sin. Just like all of us, they're broken spiritually. They've sinned against the holy God, and our only hope is the blood of Jesus. So, God, I pray today if they don't know you, they'd bend the knee to Jesus. And, God, they'd come to know this great Savior who gives forgiveness and freedom and peace and the promise of eternity. Not just the promise, but the security of eternity with him forever. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that um, you would burden our heart for the lost. We confess that much of our life is self-absorbed. We worry more about ourselves than we do about the people around us. And I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word that you've given to us, we would redirect our attention not to ourselves but to others. And God, we would see a world around us and we wouldn't grow mad or angry, but we would see a world that's simply lost. They're doing what sinners do. Just like we did prior to faith in Christ. I pray that you give us a burden to tell them about King Jesus. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.